If you ever go to Israel, and uh, I hope someday you have the opportunity to take that trip, and you take the normal tourist trip through the city, one of the places that they'll take you to is the Cynicle. The uh, Cynicle is the traditional site of the Upper Room. And uh, over the past uh, two Sundays, we've been looking at the passage that deals with the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples that took place in that upper room. Uh, it's, uh, it's just a large, empty chamber there today, and it's certainly not the chamber that Jesus and the apostles used because that building was long ago destroyed, and uh, this is simply a restoration of, of that building. The thing that struck me about it while I was there was not the, the room itself, but the room underneath, because if you go down underneath the cynical, uh, there's a shrine there that uh, is supposed to mark the place of King David's burial. Now, there, there's probably a problem there because uh, he, was, he was almost certainly buried in the city of David, but at least there's a marker there that the Jews believe marked the place that David was buried. And if David was buried under the cynical, then uh, it means that the son of David was upstairs speaking to the disciples on the very location where the son of David was buried, and he was instructing them for life, uh, for, for their behavior and their life and their activity during the time that he was gone before he would come back and set up his kingdom as the son of David. And all of this, as we've seen, took place uh, in the upper room and was preparation for the Lord's departure. He was leaving and he wanted to instruct them on their ministry while he was gone. As we saw two weeks ago, Jesus' first action was to wash the feet of the disciple, of the disciples, and we saw by that action that uh, that it's the Lord's intention that we carry on the same sort of ministry for one another. Uh, as we as we see people uh, becoming defiled as a result of their contact with the world. It's our, it's our privilege and our responsibility to help them wash their feet, to cleanse their feet from defilement. That's our responsibility toward one another. And uh, then we saw last week that we have responsibility toward those outside, those who are the enemies of, of the gospel. And we got some understanding of the Lord's love and, and his response toward uh, Judas. Even though Judas had betrayed him, the Passover plot was already in motion. Uh, the Lord was reaching out to Judas, expressing his love for him, trying to draw him back in various ways. Now, tonight we want to begin with verse 31. And um, the Lord begins at this point his, his discourse, the discourse proper, as he begins to instruct the disciples for, uh, for their ministry. Verse 31, John 13, 31. When therefore he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You shall seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. Now I say to you also, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, 
if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly I say to you, a cock shall not crow until you deny me three times. All right, now let's get the setting first of this um, passage. As I've, I'm sure you've uh, uh, picked up from the studies, I like to have people begin by reading a passage repeatedly because I think that's the best way to observe what the passage has to say, to observe the content of a passage. The problem with most of us is that we simply don't read enough times to know what's there. We, um, we read quickly, we read superficially, uh, we, don't, uh, we don't read enough times or carefully enough to observe uh, all, the, uh, all the, the subtleties, the fine nuances of, of a passage. And so I like to have people read the passage over and over and over again. As someone has said, if, if some is good, more is better, and too much is just right. Uh, the more you read the passage, the more you see. And uh, that's where I like to have people begin. And then the second step, having read the passage a number of times, is to put the passage in its, in its context, to see its relationship to the passages that go before and after. Because almost all of Scripture is a reasoned argument. There are some exceptions. The book of Proverbs is not. And, of course, there's no connection necessarily between the different psalms, the different chapters, uh, the divisions in our Bible. But normally in Scripture, there is a reasoned argument. The writer is trying to develop an idea, and he develops it in reasonable fashion. So I like to have people see how each paragraph fits into the paragraph before now, what would you say is the connection of verse 31 with what goes before? Look at the first, the first phrase. When therefore he had gone out, Jesus said. When who had gone out? What did Jesus mean when he said, Now is the Son of God glorified? In what sense was the Lord glorified by Judas' departure? The now refers to the fact that uh, almost immediately after these events, the crucifixion will take place. And so Jesus sees himself as, as though he were crucified. Now is the Son of Man glorified. By releasing Judas and, uh, in one sense, sealing his fate, now the, the events are they're inexorable. They're, the, the cross is inevitable. It's only a matter of time. So he is as good as crucified. And so he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Now, what does he mean by the Son of Man? Where does that phrase, that expression come from? That was Jesus' uh, frequent description of himself. Remember last week we talked about that, uh, the expression, Son of? In Jewish thought, the term Son of refers to someone who is in a particular class someone who belongs to a particular group. So when Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man, how is he thinking of himself? He's a man. He's a man, yes. Now this is a phrase that turns up other places in Scripture. The first place you see it is in the book of Daniel, in Daniel 7, where Daniel sees a vision of the Ancient of Days, the Lord himself seated on the throne, and one appears before the throne who's described as the Son of Man, one like a Son of Man. That is, he's like a man. 
But the Jews took that phrase to refer to Messiah. And from that point on, shortly after the time of Daniel down to Jesus' time, that term, son of man, had two meanings. It not only referred to man as man, as sort of exemplary man, but it referred to Messiah. So when Jesus used that term, that term, he was thinking both ways, both of himself as Messiah, and that's the way the Jews would, would understand his use of the term, and also as the ideal man. All right, in the Old Testament, the term glory means to be heavy. It comes from a word that means to have weight or to be heavy. So if a man had glory, he was heavy. And we use almost, we use the same uh, uh, idiom today when we talk about someone as being heavy. They have weight or wealth or value. Now, the, the term in the New Testament means almost exactly the same thing. It has the idea more of reputation, but it but it meant to the, to the Jewish mind, the Jews who used it, a sense of heaviness or weight or value or honor or wealth. I saw a, a marker once that came from, from early Greek times that describes all of the, um, the property that a man had. And at the bottom of the marker, it said, this is his glory. This is his weight, his wealth, you see. Now, that's what the term means, value or wealth. Now, what then did Jesus mean when he said, now the Son of God has weight or value? The Lord had the greatest value when he gave up his life. Now, that tells us, about, uh, that tells us what counts in this life and what doesn't count. The most valuable thing in the world is giving up one's life. Now, that's, um, that's quite a bit different from the world's assessment of value because we always think of value in terms of, of conquest. When we win, that's when we're worth something. When we achieve a great deal in, in the eyes of the world, when we're acclaimed, when we conquer, then we're valuable. But uh, the gospel tells us that, that our greatest value is when we give up our life. And you see, the Lord was going to the cross, and this was his moment of glory. This was the time when he was most valuable to the world, and he was setting for us a pattern in life. This tells us something about, about what counts in God's eyes. But when you come home at night, and you're tired, and uh, you've earned the right to rest, and uh, your wife is tired, and the children are climbing the walls and the place is in chaos. And you set aside your rights to sit down and pick up the newspaper and relax. Then you have weight. You have value. You have worth. Or when you're involved in an argument with someone and there doesn't seem to be any way to resolve the conflict. And you are finally willing to give up. You stop trying to win. And you just give away your life then you have value. That's worthwhile in God's sight. When you're in school and there's a weird new kid in school and uh, you'd just as soon not be associated with him or her and you take the time to befriend that person and you give away your own reputation and your own right and you minister to that person's need, you give up your own soul, then you have weight. You're valuable. You're glorified just as the sun was. Now, turn back a chapter to chapter 12, verse 27. 
Jesus says, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. There came therefore a voice out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. This was a word of encouragement from the Father. Jesus is saying the very purpose for which he came into the world is to give up his life for others. So in, in, in the cross, he was fulfilling his purpose. And we fulfill our purpose when we give up our life for others. You see, that's the pattern that Jesus established for us. All right? The Son of Man is glorified now, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. It's only a matter of hours before the cross uh, takes place. And that's when God will glorify the Son. He'll give him weight and honor. Now Jesus announces that um, he's leaving. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews where I am going, you cannot come. Now I say to you also, he had said before to, to the unbelieving Jewish community that he would leave. And uh, they couldn't follow him. They thought perhaps he was going to some other country. He was going to the dispersion among the, he's going among, uh, out to the, to the Gentiles. They didn't understand. Yes, he was going to the Father, but where was he going first? All right, to the cross. And in chapter 14, he's going to pick up that theme and um, elaborate on it. He's going to go to prepare a place for you. That is, he was going to the cross so he would have a place, as we'll see in a couple of weeks. And since he's going, and they're leaving, he leaves behind a, a command. A new command I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. He begins by, by telling them what the mark of relationship with him will be. All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And what is love? It's almost impossible to define love. There, there's no dictionary definition of love in Scripture. Love is always defined in terms of how it behaves. And wherever you see love described, it's always defined in those terms. It's giving up of, of yourself. It's laying down your life for someone else. Now you see, Jesus established the pattern by going to the cross. He showed the world um, what it meant to, to be glorified. He established for the world what was really valuable. It was giving up one's life. That's the pattern. And now he leaves behind a new commandment with the disciples. That's their responsibility as well, to give up their lives for one another. And that will be the thing that will distinguish us as believers. That's how people will know. Not that you have a fish sticker on the back of your car, necessarily. <laughs> Not that you care about, uh, that you carry a particular Bible, or that you go to Cole Community Church, or any other church, or that you know Greek and Hebrew, or that you've been to Multnomah, or Biola, or Western, or wherever. That's not what distinguishes us. It's not how much we know. It's not what kind of doctrine we can uh, reproduce. How many facts we've acquired from the Bible, not how many verses we've memorized. Not how much uh, Bible study, uh, how much time we invest in Bible study. That's not the mark. 
the mark of Jesus' disciple is that that this person gives up his life for others. He serves others. Now, why is that a new commandment? That's nothing new. That's found in the Old Testament. How is this command stated in the Old Testament? Love your neighbor as yourself. How does Jesus state this commandment? Love your neighbor as I love your neighbor, or as I love you. You see, how did Jesus love them? He gave up his life for them. And that's why this was a new commandment. We are to love people as Jesus loved them. That is, we are to give up our lives for them as Jesus gave up his life for us. That's the pattern. Now, apparently, Jesus was going to continue on uh, along these lines. And in chapter 15, he picks up um, his discussion, but he's interrupted because Peter didn't hear a thing he said. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Have you ever been in one of those conversations where you're trying to get something across and you just get started and right in the middle somebody interrupts and you realize they didn't hear a thing you said. They were thinking about something you said five minutes before. What had Peter heard? I'm going. And Peter's mind stopped right at that point. Whoop, wait a minute, Lord. Hold the phone. Where are you going? Now, Jesus will answer him later, but at this point he doesn't. Peter says, where are you going? Jesus says, and he just repeats himself, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow later. Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you right now? And for the word now, he uses a different word than Jesus used. It's a word that means immediately, right now. Why? I'll, I, I want to go now. Wherever you go, I'll go with you. In fact, he says, I will lay down my life for you. He tried to chop the ear off of the high priest's servant, Malchus. And he did so with a, with a little switchblade sword, just a tiny little thing in comparison to the big swords that the, uh, that the soldiers had. I think Peter really meant it. He really wanted to follow the Lord. He was willing to die for it. He was putting his life on the line in the garden. This wasn't an empty boast in that sense. Peter really thought that he would lay down his life for the Lord. He really loved him. But what did Jesus say? Will you really, Peter? Will you lay down your life for me? What would he do? Before the cock crow, he says, you'll deny me three times. What, what is the cock crow? No, it actually it isn't. Uh, I know it's, um, I know what a, what a cock is, and I know that cocks crow, but he's not really referring here to a, uh, to a bird. The, uh, the evening was for the Romans was divided into four watches. There was an evening watch from 6 to 9. There was a midnight watch from 9 to 12. And then there was a watch from 12 to 3 that was called a cock crow. And from 3 to 6, there was a morning watch. And they had ways of signaling each of these watches when they would change the guard. And the Roman soldiers would march in and out much as they changed the guard in front of Buckingham Palace. And that that 12 to 3 hour was called the cock crow. And the horn that signaled the 12 o'clock and the 3 o'clock time was called the cock. Now, what was Jesus saying? When did these events take place? They were, it was night, wasn't it? Judas had, had just gone out, and it was night. So we don't know exactly what time. Uh, it was winter, so or spring, rather. So it was probably uh, fairly uh, light into the evening. So it might have been 8 or 9 o'clock. What is he saying? 
Peter, will you really lay down your life for me within three hours? Or at the most six hours, you'll deny me three times. And we know that that's precisely what happened. Peter not only said this once, he said it twice. If you look at the uh, parallel gospel accounts in Matthew 26, it's the best place to turn. Um, Peter made this uh, affirmation before the, uh, they left the upper room and then after they left the upper room. He was so, so sure that he would lay down his life for the Lord. And uh, we know from Matthew 26 that the other disciples were caught up in this thing. They began to say, oh, we'll lay down our life too. And they all fled and ran. Well, what do we learn? Was Peter in earnest? Yes, he really was. When you say you want to lay down your life for people and you want to love them according to the pattern of Jesus' love and you want to have value in God's eyes because you're willing to give up your life to people, do you mean it? Sure you do. Can you do it? No, you can't. And neither can I. Because there's only one person who can love people like that, and that's the Lord Jesus himself. And that Peter had to learn. Peter was like Moses in Egypt. When he saw one of his brethren in trouble, he went out and, and uh, he, he defended him. He killed the Egyptian who was beating one of his brethren, and he buried him in the sand, and he set God's program back for 40 years. When we go out to try to love people in our own strength and serve them and give up our lives, we become nothing more than martyrs in the sense that Peter was almost a martyr. But we're not, we're not giving up our lives in the sense that Jesus gave up his life. But once we understand the principle of abiding in Christ and living out of his life, then it's possible. Now that's what Peter didn't know yet. You see, he'd been with the Lord all of these years, but he didn't understand where that kind of love comes from. And it isn't until you get to chapter 15 that Jesus begins to reveal the secret of power and the means by which we can love people like this. Do you want people to know that you're a, a disciple of his? Well, the standard, the mark, is love like Jesus' love. And the power from that love comes from understanding that it's Jesus indwelling us who makes possible that kind of love. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you that, that you're the one who, who provides the sort of strength that we need to love people according to your, your example. And we would really, we would like to be known as, as your disciples because we love people in that way. And, uh, we know that, that this is possible as we understand and act out of your strength. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.